you can pay a small fee and be able to get limited information about individuals on the dark web and can be purchased pretty easily that, you know, those sites have pulled from different public sites to create on individuals. Introducing the Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Mike Carroll, International President of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. I'm here in Chicago. In Connecticut is Mark Solomon, our International Vice President. Mark, how are you doing today? Mike, I'm doing great and really looking forward. We got our international conference coming up in National Harbor, Maryland shortly. Mark, have you seen the program? It is outstanding. Great speakers, great networking events. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. And talking about great, we have another great guest on our podcast today. He has been in law enforcement for 30 years with 20 years dedicated to the U.S. Secret Service. He started his career in the Orlando, Florida field office, moved on to multiple headquarters assignments in Washington, D.C. He was on Vice President Biden's protective detail and then returned to the Orlando field office as a supervisor and then eventually promoted to assistant to the special agent in charge in the Jacksonville field office. He currently serves as a U.S. Secret Service National Pandemic Recovery Coordinator. He has extensive knowledge and investigative experience regarding all types of cyber fraud, virtual currency, money laundering, and asset forfeiture. His task force, which is actually being recognized this year at our conference, has been successful in recovering over $700 million just in the previous year related to CARES Act fraud. In addition, his investigations with the U.S. Secret Service have been so successful, they have been able to recover over $4 billion in victim assets and have earned him numerous awards and accolades. And he's even gotten an Oscar, I'm told, because uh, in 2022, he received the Samuel J. Heyman Service to America Award, which is really known as like the it's equal to the Oscars in government service. So we have a celebrity. Welcome to our show, Roy Dotson. Well, guys, uh, Mike and Mark, thank you so much for having me this evening. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation, and I'm actually very excited about the National Conference, too, in National Harbor. Uh, it's kind of my old stopping grounds when I lived in D.C., so beautiful area. Uh, it's going to be a fun time. Well, Roy, listening to uh, Mark do your biography, we might, we might have to set up an autograph booth at the uh, conference coming up and. Uh... You might have to give out some autographs. I like it. I like it, Mike. <laughs> I don't know. That might just come, all that might just come with longevity. You know, when you get older, you just do a lot of things, I think. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's incredible, though, when I go to the IFCI conferences and the incredible people that I get to network with and meet, the investigators, both private and public. I mean, believe me, um, we've got some outstanding, outstanding investigators out there across the country that I've had the privilege of meeting. So uh, I'm sure they could put their resumes up against mine any day. 
Well, Roy, I don't know about that, but you know, when you get older, you're supposed to slow down, but you seem to speed up. I mean, you've, <laughs> you've done su such incredible work over the last number of years, and uh, we're glad to have you on the show and talk a little bit about what you're doing. But first, uh, you know, I, I was wondering, how did you get involved in, in law enforcement and eventually the Secret Service? Uh, you know, what was your story, your, your roadmap into law enforcement? Yeah, so it, it's kind of a unique story. I mean, growing up as a kid, and this will date me too, I always wanted to be Perry Mason. I like the, uh, the side of being an attorney, but I also like that investigator side that he seemed to be able to. Of course, he had the 100% successful rate. Um, I haven't quite read, uh, rose to that level yet. But, You're um, close. That You're close. <laughs> yeah, that kind of intrigued me. Um, when I was in college, I had a roommate and he actually became a local police officer and he absolutely loved it. And so he was talking to me about it. It piqued my interest. I ended up going to the law enforcement academy here in uh, South Florida and then started my career early on in a small department in South Florida called Lighthouse Point. Worked there two years, moved up to Brevard County, which is just east of Orlando, kind of the area where the Space Center is, um, and that's kind of home for me. Went back to the sheriff's office there, worked there for almost 10 years, doing seven years of undercover drugs, doing that work, um, kicking in a lot of doors, writing a lot of warrants, doing wiretaps, uh, doing a lot of seizures then, of course, and just loved the job. Um, I was getting a little bit older. I was working on a DA task force. Uh, working with a lot of federal investigators and trying to decide what I wanted to do in my next step of my career. People started to talk to me from, you know, of course, the DEA. And at that time, it was ICE um, and FBI. And so I was processing with them. And then I had a friend who was at Secret Service kind of explain to me, you know, what that role was. And as as a lot of people know, we have an integrated mission that includes not only the, you know, the awesome assignment of protecting the president of the United States, but also we have the responsibility that's been mandated by Congress to safeguard the U.S. financial infrastructure. And with that comes a lot of fraud investigations, which also is something that is near and dear to my heart, obviously, as you guys know, investigations are. So it was the best of two worlds. I mean, how could I go wrong? I could, uh, you know, protect the president one day, next day work on a, a Ponzi scheme or some type of cybercrime case and go back and forth and just have, you know, just have a really good time. And, and after almost 20 years, it's been an incredible journey, uh, just an incredible journey. Hey, Roy, I just want to mention, too, that I'm a retired uh, U.S. Postal Inspector and one of the things that I enjoyed is working with other agencies and putting cases together. And, and throughout my whole career, I've worked with many Secret Service agents, and uh, I always enjoyed it. We always got along great, worked some great cases. Even when I'm out with Secret Service, you know, you always hear something, hey, I, I thought the Secret Service, they protect the president. But as you mentioned, you do get involved in investigating financial crimes. So I was just going to ask, what type of crimes for our audience, like what type of financial crimes does the U.S. Secret Service investigate? I know one of them, right, is counterfeit money. Yeah. So, you know, in 1865, obviously, we were founded based on investigation. And it was because the uh, U.S. financial infrastructure was in dire straits. 
they say at that time a third to a half of U.S. currency was counterfeit. So at that time, President Lincoln decided to establish the Secret Service as an investigative agency, and it took, you know, till after uh, President McKinley's assassination in in about 1903 or 1904 that we took on protection. So we were founded as being investigators and investigators of financial crimes. What we do today, um, all types of cyber crime, you know, primarily you'll see us doing bank fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud. We do a lot of ransomware cases nowadays. Um, we do network intrusions where we have, you know, extensive cyber fraud task forces, 44 across the world. That include not only financial investigators, but they also include forensic examiners. So we are deep diving into that part of the case. I mean, as as you guys know, and, and working these cases these days, there's there's not a case that doesn't touch some type of electronic device, and particularly it's usually your iPhone. I mean, that's your everybody is on their iPhone, and a fraudster's life is no different. Yeah. Hey, Roy, a little bit of trivia here. Back in 1865, Mike was only four years old. I didn't know if he knew that or not. <laughs> so uh, he, he actually met Lincoln as a little child and uh, thought uh, it was one of his uh, stamps were a penny role models. There you go. So, Roy, I wanted to ask you before we get into obviously, we're talking fraud, cyber crimes here in the CARES Act uh, in a little bit, but I'd love to get a little personal take. How many presidents have you protected and who was your favorite? So I have protected eight presidents. My favorite probably was George Sr., so 41, as we called him. Mr. and Miss Bush were just, uh, they were just really sweet and, and great people. I mean, I've obviously had great experiences with many presidents and first ladies. Um, but I, if I had to pick a favorite, they were my favorite, just um, very personal. And so when I think of that, that's who comes to mind. So, Roy, I had the honor. I did 26 years in law enforcement here in Connecticut. I got to spend the last 11 of those on a federal task force with the U.S. Secret Service, uh, the Connecticut Financial Crimes Task Force. I I really, man, I learned so much as a local uh, police officer uh, joining a federal task force, and I just really have to commend the, the work that the Secret Service does. It's, I'm sure it's very taxing on the agents at times to have a dual mission, but boy, you guys do an incredible job when it comes to financial crime and cyber crime investigations. Well, thank you. And, and I tell you, um, the task forces that you speak of are kind of things that support our offices. You know, this day and age with to be honest with it, the amount of travel that our protectees do, um, a lot of our offices sometimes get short-staffed because the agents are sent out on assignments. And it's our task force members, federal, state, local, mainly our state and local, that really step up and continue the investigations that we have going. It's incredible. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, we do our best to build these partnerships and relationships um, but it is a, uh, a tremendous benefit to the service for like you or others from state and locals to participate and team up with us because we learn a lot from you. Um, there's times, as I'm sure that you experienced in your career, where not every case rises to the level of a federal prosecution. But when we have state and local partners in our task force, 
we can maybe take those to the state and prosecute them, have a great outcome, recover funds for victims, or at least get some justice for victims. And it's a win-win. So thank you so much for participating in our task forces. We love our task force members, um, but it's, it's a two-way street here. We get as much benefit from you as, as you get from us. Yeah. And, you know, what the great thing about it, too, is, you know, a lot of times local state law enforcement jurisdiction, they're restricted in investigating some of these crimes that go outside of the area. So that's what I found so uh, great is that, you know, as a federal law enforcement agency, you could come in and take all these cases and make sure they get prosecuted as one case. So it is a great teamwork on everybody's part. Yeah, that's the other thing that great about that is obviously you get deputized as a federal agent. So it does give you that jurisdiction to expand it across the country, you know, to have that venue in other areas that you wouldn't normally have it. And it also, you know, the other benefit of our task force is we are able to provide specific um, training through our, you know, National Computer Forensics Institute in, in Hoover, Alabama, or other Secret Service trainings or other trainings outside that we can pay for. And then the equipment that we can purchase for our task force members helps out agencies tremendously, you know, especially this day and age when manpower and budgets are, are pretty tight. It's helpful that, you know, we can step in and at least assist in some ways in getting not only the tools, but also the, the knowledge that they need to, uh, you know, ramp up those cases to a federal level. Hey, Roy, I want to ask you another area that U.S. Secret Service gets involved in as far as investigation is skimming. I just was at a recent presentation with our local chapter, a great agent, Young, from U.S. Secret Service, spoke on uh, what they're seeing involving ATM skimming and all different types of uh, skimming, gas pump skimming. I was going to ask you, just for our listeners out there, anything that our listeners can do to protect themselves when they're using a credit card to prevent from getting caught up in uh, any type of skimming activity? Yeah, I mean, Secret Service is heavily into skimming of all levels. You know, I think the majority that we see is obviously in the gas pumps or at the point of sale. And so it's really um, paying attention to, you know, where you where you shop, the devices you use, um, look to, you know, pull on the outer processing components to make sure that they're seated properly on a gas pump. You know, also, I like to tell people to regularly check their credit through the different credit bureaus to make sure that they're monitoring it or that they put special alerts on it, because typically you will get a, a notice if for some reason you get skimmed here in Jacksonville and all of a sudden somebody, uh, you know, tomorrow or later tonight is making a purchase in Chicago. So, you know, the credit card companies pick up on that now, but it's always good to place those alerts on it. And then, you know, obviously, you know, there's different ID theft software and programs that you can, um, you know, paid services and others that you can get to better protect yourself. And then finally, I would just say, if you become a victim, you know, the quicker you can reach out to local law enforcement and let them know, or even your federal law enforcement partners, your cyber fraud task forces, and let us, you know, take a look to see what we can figure out because you might 
you know, be part of a large skimming group, which is pretty prominent these days. Um, and so it could be very beneficial to you, to others, other potential victims, if you let us know. Hey, Roy, I wanted to turn your focus to the pandemic here. Um, obviously, devastation across the world with COVID-19 really changed a lot of things on how do we operate, but it also created some very unique opportunities for fraudsters. And I know this is one of your passions over the last couple of years, but can you explain a little bit of how fraudsters took advantage of COVID and, and also your, your involvement in the Secret Service involvement and what we call CARES Act fraud? Yeah, so it wasn't a, a very sophisticated crime when, like you said, when the CARES Act was passed in March of 2020. Um, it was, you know, an easy process. You did an online application either for unemployment insurance benefits or for small business administration loans, whether those were PPP or IDLE. And those loans were quickly processed. You know, Congress was trying, I believe, honestly, and the states were trying to get the funds out as quickly as possible to those that were deeply hurting. Unfortunately, you know, this was a crime of opportunity and our transnational and domestic organized crime groups were there to, to get involved. They took those opportunities. It wasn't, um, you know, I, I kind of say it like this, usually about December, maybe early part of January, our transnational and domestic organized groups, they get ready for tax season primarily or their usual business email compromises or their romance scams of some type. And they're ready to go for the new year. And I think they were ready. I think that the CARES Act uh, came about and it was a massive pot. You know, I, I don't think that I'm speaking in any way out of turn. The uh, Small Business Administration Office of Inspector General, Inspector General, where even said that, you know, the guardrails were lowered and it was in an effort to try to get the funds out quickly. Well, unfortunately, the system wasn't ready for that. Um, the statewide workforce agencies, the agencies that put out unemployment payments, there's 54 of them across the U.S. and U.S. territories. They are basically independent. They don't talk to each other, really. They don't have a system uh, or a data base that cross-references, and their system was a very antiquated. Um, so, again, it was a simple online application with no checks and balances. And then on the SBA side, a lot of the loans, particularly IDLE, you did not have to submit any documentation on the front end, just an online application. And obviously, fraudsters took advantage of just creating fictitious information. Um, and money was doled out in the billions. And the one thing that was really eye-opening, you know, we all, as investigators, criminal investigators, we're all pretty in the know when it comes to money mules, individuals that have been socially engineered some way online to move money for fraudsters. Um, and that can be through a romance scam, through a charity, through a lottery. There's all different kind of ruses that they use. But anyways, we have these money mules out there. Well, the fraudsters, there was so much money coming out 
so many loans put out, so many unemployment payments, that the fraudsters had to tap into that market. And it was hundreds of thousands of money mule accounts that they utilized. And I know, having been in law enforcement, you know, for 28 years or so at that time, I never knew the money mule network was so large and vast and able to move funds so quickly. Hey, Roy, you mentioned uh, money mule. Can you, for our audience, uh, there might be a few people don't understand what that term means. Uh, could you explain that a little further? Yeah. So when you are online on all types of different social media sites, you know, whatever that might be, i.e., you know, Facebook or some kind of dating site, um, you interact with people. These are people that, for the most part, you've never met. So fraudsters on the other side of that, and usually, mostly these are organized groups that, you know, have a department that just social engineer people online. So basically what they do is they start a conversation with somebody, and we'll just talk about a romance scam, and it might be an individual here in Florida, they don't know who they're talking to, they'll put up some type of photos on the other end to kind of entice them and maybe into a dating kind of opportunity, you know, they'll have ongoing conversations for, you know, days or weeks or literally could be years. And somewhere along that line, the individual on the other end, whatever story they've given them, whether they're on an oil rig in, you know, off the Gulf of Mexico and they don't have access to a banking system or they're in a country where they don't have regular banking opportunities, they will ask that individual to move funds for them. And that can be either by opening an account that will be utilized by the fraudster um, when they give them access, or it could be an existing account where they'll tell them, hey, we're just going to send you some money, and when we do, I'll let you know where it needs to go. And it's all kind of backstories that they use for this, but unfortunately, people are duped into this criminal activity um, unknowingly, mostly, some become knowing, and then they start this activity where they're literally laundering money for fraudster or criminal organizations. Yeah, right. You know, there's another type of money mule, you know, those that get involved at a work at home project or, you know, they yeah. meet somebody online, hey, we need a favor or I got this company. If you work for me, I'm going to send you some money. Just need to forward it on. We don't have an account here or the rates are too high overseas. So people get caught up in these types of um inadvertently becoming a money mule. You know, I, I guess they we do. would say t- to those, they need to do their homework before they get caught up in anything like this. Yeah, what I always tell people, because I've talked to literally hundreds, if not thousands of money mules, and they will even say it, if I would have just thought about it for a moment, or they'll say, you know, it didn't quite feel right. So that's what I always tell people. You know, because I get it, I'll get it from friends and family that I'll get an opportunity online for whatever it is, whether it's, um, you know, make money fast or it's some kind of foreign lottery scam or something or a job opportunity. I always say, take a minute, you know, think about it for a second. Does it sound right? Does what they're offering you sound like something legitimate? And would somebody be asking you to move their money for them when you have never, ever physically met that person or have an established relationship? 
And so, yeah, it really just comes down to taking a minute, using your common sense, and, you know, taking that greed factor out of a little bit. We have to be honest here. People, people want to make money without having to do much work. So the fraudsters are smart. They prey on that. Um, they also prey on emotion. So they, you know, they target people, whether it's in a romance scam or somebody that they try to get money for a particular type of situation, whether that's charity, you know, a fake GoFundMe account. Um, things like that. So yeah, it's across the board. Money meals are used a ton on business email compromises, on um, you know fictitious invoices. You name it, they're utilized by fraudsters to move money um, because it just creates another layer. It gives the fraudsters the ability to quickly get the money and then quickly move it again, which obviously gives us as investigators a little tougher route because we have to jump through those hoops to follow those funds. Hey, Roy, when you talk about the benefits offered through the CARES Act, I'm thinking the payment protection program, the economic injury disaster loans, and then unemployment insurance. Now, the fraud that's related to the unemployment insurance hits home for me because I've had some family members where their personal identifiers were used Mm -hmm. to get unemployment in their names. Mm Mm-hmm. So my question would be, how did they get their personal information? How would they know a family member's name, date of birth, social security number, in order to apply for unemployment insurance? Where were they getting that information from? Would you know? Well, we believe that some of those are from previous database intrusions. So that information is out on the dark web and can be purchased pretty easily. There's also a ton of public sites that you can pay a small fee and be able to get limited information about individuals that, you know, those sites have pulled from different public sites to create on individuals. Yeah, you're right, because my great uncle was a victim and they, he was in his 80s and he didn't have a driver's license, but his employment was a taxi driver. So that was, yeah. so we knew it was fraud related right there. Yep. Right. Just talking about the sheer volume of fraud that has gone on over the last couple of years here. I refer to an NBC News article here. It says that they estimated around $80 billion or 10% of the $800 billion that was allotted for the payment protection program is suspected to have been given out fraudulently. And then of the $900 billion in COVID unemployment relief program, they estimate anywhere from $90 billion to $400 billion might have been fraudulently given or taken by criminals. That's staggering. It is staggering. It is staggering. Those are, as we all know, I mean, when you get into the bees, um, anytime you have losses in that area, especially when you're talking tens to hundreds of those, it's serious. And I know that, you know, those numbers are staggering. Uh, I can tell you, you know, just being involved in the investigate, they're not really shocking anymore. I know that Congress has GSA doing an evaluation and not only SBA OIG, but um, the DOL OIG. They're all waiting to see what that outcome is as far as what the true loss is. I get this question all the time, and I have to be Mm -hmm. very careful about putting numbers to it. Um, But it's safe to say it's, it's a substantial, substantial amount of money. 
And like you said, you know, the attentions here were good to help Americans, but a lot of this money never made it to those Americans that needed it and instead wound up in the hands of criminals, not only here in the U.S., but overseas. Um, What are some of the things that the federal government and federal law enforcement agencies are doing now to combat this type of fraud? So the good part, when I say good part, the positive that came out of this, we have, and I'll speak not only, I think, from the statewide workforce agencies, SBA, all the benefit programs, all the IGs, even federal law enforcement, state and local, all of us have learned a tremendous amount during this time. I think we have learned to be maybe a little better prepared. I think we talked about it earlier. I know that Department of Labor and Small Business Administration have worked to greatly improve their um, identification software so that on the front end, they can do a better job of vetting applications because uh, I think it was the PRAC inspector general that said that, you know, if they would have just taken a few more, a week or two possibly to try to, you know, improve their systems, um, prior to disseminating money that it would have saved a tremendous amount of money. So I think that has improved. I think that those entities are also looking at new systems that will really deep dive into their applicants to truly determine if they are eligible. And then on the law enforcement side, I think the one thing, um, and not to toot the services horn, but, you know, It wasn't hard, like you said early on, that you could see this coming. I mean, it was a lot of money. It was coming out fast. It was a simple process. And we were able to get the word out quickly to the financial sector, which I've been told by numerous presidents and investigators that it saved billions upon billions of dollars because they were told to look for this. Here are the fraud indicators that you should watch for. And so I think that getting the word out quickly, having a a plan in place, I think now we understand that, you know, heaven forbid there's another pandemic, but the next natural disaster that we have when funds, you know, U.S. government funds or state funds go out, we'll have a better way of how we spun up our task forces, how we attack these how we worked um, to identify money mules and the fraudsters. So I think we're in a much better place the next time we go through this, hopefully, or hopefully we don't have to go through it. But being realistic, there'll be something coming down the road. Hey, Roy, like I mentioned, you know, having family members that were a victim of unemployment insurance fraud, they were able to go to their state unemployment insurance office and fill out, you know, the forms to uh, help take care of the uh, problem, which was great. What about, like, the payment protection program and economic injury disasters loans. Where would the public go for that? Yeah, so they can go to SBA's open site, their website, and on there they can file an identity theft affidavit. Okay. um, And that will alert the SBA that they've been a victim of identity theft, whether that's corporate or individual. Um, on some type of loan. So I would highly recommend that. I think by now, anyone that's been a victim, like you said, through the statewide workforce agencies, they've created those 
um, ability to file identity theft. I would also say it never hurts for individuals to file with their local law enforcement agency identity theft reports to have on file. I know a lot of law enforcement agencies locally, that might be just a quick over the phone, but I would put that in place because I believe it also will help them if there's questions that come up related to tax issues or, you know, payback for loans or unemployment or whether they got unemployment on their tax, all that stuff. Having that on file, they'll be able to document that in their tax return, which will help alleviate some issues. And then going back to what we talked about earlier, it's so, so important and tough. We all know once your identity has been stolen, to clean that up is tough. So it's good to alert your credit bureaus um, that you believe you've been a victim identity theft. And so they can document that on your file there and alert you to any additional things that might happen if somebody were to use that information to try to open other credit. You know, right. That's a great point because, it, again, it happened to a family member and they were able to get unemployment in that person's name. So that's considered income, right? And you need to report that yeah. on your taxes. And one yeah. way to let the IRS know that it was fraud was to go out and get a police report. And that's what they did. That helped them solve that situation. Yeah. And I think uh, the federal government itself, I, I just testified before Congress um, about two months ago, and that was one of the questions that came up a lot is, and we all understand that there's a big side of this that we have that is the identity theft and the individuals that have suffered that. And so they're, you know, federal law enforcement in general, the PRAC are all looking at ways to try to correct those issues for identity theft victims moving forward, because we know that people are going to have issues. Um, they're going to have things they're going to have to deal with, and we need to come up with a mechanism for them to be able to correct those issues. All right. This is the point in our podcast, Roy. We break it up a little levity right now. We've got a couple of trivia questions for you. I'm going to put you on the spot. Who is the only president after he left office to relinquish Secret Service protection? I know all of the Secret Service brass are probably listening to this podcast, so... Oh, boy. <laughs> Nixon? That's right. Ding, 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 ding. He's right. All right. Second question. This might be tough. In 1865, how old was Mike Carroll? Four. Four. He got it right. Uh, two for two. All right. We're going to send nice. you a, a check for $1,000. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Right. So, well, I, 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 I have a question for Roy. Yeah. Right, you mentioned that you seized $4 billion. Now, my question is, was that from one arrest? And if it was, how did you fit all that cash in the trunk? <laughs> well, it wasn't one arrest. It was uh, multiple large Ponzi, international Ponzi schemes and uh, the first cryptocurrency company. Um, so it was a myriad of things. But, yeah, that would be a very big trunk. And, you know, as my wife always says, if I could just get a percentage of seizures, um, a 1% or less, I'd be, you know, I'd be in pretty good shape. Yeah. 
Hey, Roy, I wanted to ask you this, too. Maybe leave off with this here. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. But can you talk a little bit about the uh, Florida CARES Act task force that you work with and some of the great accomplishments? Like I said, you guys are being honored at our international conference in August in uh, Maryland. But can you talk a little bit about the team that you put together and that you work with and, and some of the great things that they've done? And then maybe a little bit, if you could just tell us what you think of the IFCI. We have a lot of our members listening in to this podcast as well. And uh, I'd love to get your take on the IFCI. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about the, uh, the task force. Uh, we're honored to be awarded this year. You know, on the heels of uh, the Secret Service's Tampa office getting it last year, which has Tampa has an incredible task force, too. Um, but the Florida Cares Act Fraud Task Force, we kind of came together. The Jacksonville and the Orlando office combined our efforts. You know, the Cares Act fraud was an unprecedented event. We talked about the numbers. We talked about the number of potential cases, and we needed to have an extraordinary to target and go after those fraudsters and to recover those funds. I think we had probably about 36 um, federal, state, and local task force members that were part of this. Hundreds of investigations. Um, we've done over 400 interviews, 56 search seizure warrants, which encompassed 28,000 uh, seized accounts. And as we said earlier, 703 million recovered. The great part of this is, you know, nobody can accomplish anything on their own. I've learned that. Not real hard, but after 30 years, you really learn that, um, you know, when you put together a great team, and that's from, you know, not only criminal investigators, when we're talking about analysts, even, you know, student interns, trainees, we call them here, um, forensic examiners, you put that team together, everybody has a part, everybody is willing to work toward the same goal, you have some amazing accomplishments. And that's what we ended up here. A lot of good, great individual cases, you know, we dealt in, you know, cryptocurrency a lot that really came to the forefront during the pandemic, people utilizing that, fraudsters utilizing that to send money to their money mules, and then have them convert that to cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, we've seen the use of Bitcoin um, ATMs pretty widely during this time. So a lot of different technologies came into play. And so this team has just been very cohesive, um, done a great job. Many of them, probably maybe all of them, or most of them for sure, are IAFCI members. And, you know, that goes back to, you know, this organization. I am proud to be a member of this organization. When myself or an agent from my office or another office or even a task force member, when we can look at a directory and find a contact somewhere that's part of the IFTI and you can pick up the phone or you can send an email and having that relationship because of this organization, it's unbelievable how quickly things get done um, and just the amazing outcomes that we have. So I can't say enough good things about this organization. The training they provided, I actually took the uh, Certified Cyber Crimes Investigator course last year, outstanding course, and they have you know a few others that I'm looking to take. Again, 
that training, going to these conferences, you know, I've learned even after 29, 30 years on the job, that's one thing that I try to focus on. Um, I still try to learn. And if you still want to learn, go to one of these conferences. Believe me, they have some of the most cutting edge stuff. You know, I went to, and I can't remember the course last year was on um, investigative techniques. And it just opened my eyes to some new, new ways to do things, you know, and then Mike and Mark talk about the networking. You meet some incredible people, investigators that we all, I think, have the same goal. We hate fraudsters. We hate the fact that they target people like our families and friends and other victims. And we want to hold them accountable and we want to recover those funds. And so when we come together, you meet people from all different public organizations that are a tremendous value to these, these investigations. Hey, Roy, as uh, Mark uh, mentioned there in your intro, uh, you're a finalist for the Samuel J. Hyman Service Award to America. I'm just curious, when, first of all, I've seen the finalists and it's awesome. The names of people that have done a lot for this country, um, it's awesome. Are you going to be able to know if you won the award uh, by the conference or is it something that's going to be down the road? And also, is there a link so we could see all the finalists, including you? Yes. Yes to all that. It's servicetoamericamedals.org. You can go there and see all the amazing finalists. I find it, (laughs) it's very humbling to be a finalist. Um, Last year, I was a nominee. I didn't make it to a finalist. This year, I made it. And to be honest, last year before that, unfortunately, I really didn't know anything about the CMEs and just the incredible work being done across, you know, the federal government. Um, If you look at some of those other finalists, I mean, I find myself, uh, I have no place really being there. I am just amazed at the things they've done. But again, I I, I find it an honor for myself and um, the CARES Act team, a team from the service that was selected as a finalist. I don't know when they'll announce or when we'll find out whether we have won the award or not. And and my group, each group has a winner. I think I'm, I'm in safety, security, and international affairs. But if I do, Mike and Mark, you'll be one of the first to know. All right. Okay, because we're hoping by the conference, then we could have, a, like, the Academy Awards and after party. You know, we got oh, to get boy. together with all the, all the big shots. <laughs> uh, there's always after parties, right? <laughs> well, Roy, we, we hope you win this award. Uh, you're well-deserving of it. And whether you win or not, let me tell you something. We are so lucky to have you as as an expert in this area, an IFCI member, uh, a member of the U.S. Secret Service, and uh, our communities are thankful for the work that you are doing and the fine men and women of the Secret Service and law enforcement. So thank you very much. Yeah, and Roy, we could put on our show notes the link to SBA, even a link to the U.S. Secret Service, maybe for even for law enforcement members that might want to join the Cyber Fraud Task Force that you have going. Yep, um, yep. And then information on the... Uh, Samuel Heyman Award that we could put uh, information on that, all the finalists, including you. That'd be awesome. That'd be great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's been an honor. I look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks, and I know it's going to be a great time. 
Yeah, we're looking forward to it, Roy. And hey, Roy, just real quick, you know, the the, the single winner of Mega Millions was in Chicago. One winner. And Carol, Mike's been a little evasive with me over the last couple of days. Uh, I'm wondering, is there any way to find out if he won the, the lotto and he's not telling us? Well, I am 100% confident Mike wouldn't have been here tonight had he actually won. So now there's a, there's a, I, I, I there's a season investigator a right I, there. Yeah, yeah. Because I know I probably would have been missing too. Yeah. So, um, but no, I'm pretty confident he hasn't. Um, and if if he if he has, then obviously he's he's buying everything. In the only weeks, thing so. is he's. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, and he looks like he's on an island uh, in Bora Bora right now. I can see him on my screen, so uh, I'm starting to think he won. <laughs> oh, no, man. Yeah, you're right, Roy. If I would have won, I don't think I would have been here. But, hey, <laughs> nope. Right. Nope. Well, Roy, thanks, brother. We appreciate it. And you're be welcome. safe out there. And, uh, like, again, we're so proud of uh, the work that you're doing. And uh, keep plugging away at then going after these bad guys. All right, guys. Have a great night. All right. Thank you, Roy. Take care. Be safe. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.